0: In the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, I got an email from someone in my family that said that drinking water every 15 minutes would keep me from getting the virus. Remember that rumor? Now, I want to repeat that constantly drinking water will not keep you from getting COVID-19. And yet, this was just one of the many, many myths about COVID swirling around on the internet and in social media. And some of them have caused people some real harm. Bad information like this, whether it's maliciously created and spread, or innocently so, is a growing problem in our hyper-digitalized societies. It can harm people, and it can harm democracies. I'm Clara Young, and I work in the OECD's Education and Skills Directorate. Today, I talk to Cara Brisson-Boythen, who is Director of Research at Mediaspart's Canada Centre for Digital and Media Literacy and Jordan Hill, who is an OECD analyst currently writing a working paper on digital media literacy. This podcast is the second in a two-part series on disinformation, misinformation, and what education can do about it. So Cara brisson boyvin Jordan Hill, thank you for coming on this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So Media Smarts has a school digital media literacy program called Break the Fake. Now, Kara, what would you teach students to do when they see fake COVID advice, like the one I just mentioned in the intro, that, you know, constantly sipping water keeps you from getting infected with with the
1: virus? It really uh, boils down to these four key ways to tell if something is true online, and that's to use fact-checking tools, so you want to see if there are experts who have already done this work for you. you know, Snopes would be an example of one of those to find the source. So go to the original source of a story, you know, reminding people that what you see in a social media post is not necessarily the original source. So you have to do that work. Um, to verify that source, you can check Google, you can do a Wikipedia search to verify the uh, both you know, authenticity of the source, but also whether it has a good track record. And then lastly, define other sources. So seek out other news outlets and see if there are other uh, venues that are also reporting on the source. You know, in particular, um, other outlets with perhaps a sort of different political bent, if you will. Um, And then we want to remind people that each of these four tips and tricks Uh, only takes a matter of minutes, and in fact, usually if you do one of the four, you're able to quite quickly verify whether that uh, source is is authentic and true. PISA
0: 2018 revealed some very interesting things about digital media literacy teaching in schools that more than half of 15-year-old students said they were being taught at school how to tell the difference between biased and unbiased information. But at the same time, the reading tests show that less than half of 15-year-olds in OECD countries could tell the difference between fact and opinion online. So those are kind of unsettling statistics.
1: Yeah. and. You know, one of the challenges when we're talking about mis and disinformation, for example, is that, you know, from an educational perspective, the distinction between mis and disinformation and just to boil that down really simply and oversimplify it, you know, uh, disinformation is uh, inaccurate or untrue information that is shared uh, with intention. Misinformation is inaccurate or untrue information shared unintentionally. But from an educational perspective, the distinction between the two isn't very relevant because there's no way to tell intent. And that's what you're getting at there, right? It's very difficult for us as users to tell intention behind whether someone was, in fact, sharing this, uh, you know, um, with intent. And part of that is that as users were constantly trying to sift through, is this someone's opinion that I just disagree with? And are we just disagreeing on on an an opinion or a a particular subject or is this in fact like a really dangerous piece of malicious you know content or information that something needs to be done about and so we don't spend a lot of time on that difference between mis and disinformation instead we really want to encourage people to um, you know question how do we know who or what to trust You know, it's really about seeking out those sources, as I was mentioning. Um, And one of the things that we really emphasize, especially with young people who are at this critical age of wanting to seek out, you know, worldviews and new ways of knowing and being is to be critical consumers of information. Um, You know, asking questions is is a great thing, but we don't want to become so skeptical that we don't trust anything. That's a really, it's a really dangerous place to be in, right, where you think, you know, that there's, you can't trust anything, so again, Those four tips that I was mentioning, a lot of our tools around authenticating information and verifying information is about helping people, especially young people, feel confident in being able to determine when something is trustworthy.
0: About that point that you made that you don't want uh, young people and children to sort of give up on being able to find good information. Is it one of the worries or something that's connected to this finding that young people tend to be passive on the internet and social media, that they're not
1: really engaging actively and positively in that world? I'm not sure. I mean, the the work that we've done at Media Smarts, I think, contradicts that a little bit. You know, we've done focus groups and research with young people for over 20 years, and our work, you know, certainly demonstrates that young people are engaging at a variety of different levels. So certainly there's some passivity there. And, you know, our most recent work, they definitely have indicated that one of their top, uh, you know, forms of engagement is posting and comments, as opposed to, say, like video creation. And of course, that's a little bit more challenging, Um, you know, we'll get in the rabbit hole of some of the reasons for that are around access and tools. But at the same time, we've also heard from young people quite strongly a desire, especially around these uh, authenticating and verifying information skills for more, particularly more education, more support. They're hyper aware that they need to be very conscious of um, information seeking online, especially when it comes to school projects. And we've heard from both youth and their parents that, you know, the internet is a really difficult place for seeking information. You've got the world at your fingertips, and that can be overwhelming. There's all kinds of rabbit holes that young people can go down. And, you know, part of that is also understanding the architecture of the online space. So one of the things that we know from our work is that young people use YouTube like a repository of information. From an authenticating and verifying information perspective, YouTube's great for like how-to videos if you wanna learn how to sew. It's not great if you wanna figure out things like, if you have questions about climate change, for example. Again, the architecture uh, piece is really important as well to help young people understand how content is recommended to them, how algorithms and their engagement with the space, whether they're liking content and um, and, and sort of moving that up in the queue in terms of that algorithm um, will impact the kinds of information they're getting these are all the kinds of, you know, digital media literacy skills that we need to consider when we're talking about combating, you know, mis and disinformation, but other online harms as well.
0: That brings me to the point, I, I came across a, a public education program in Finland a few years ago that teaches people um, basically how algorithms work. Should algorithmic literacy be included in digital media literacy?
1: Yes, I think so. Absolutely. Um, And especially as more and more of our online engagements and experiences and relationships are being cultivated in an algorithmic context, you know, everything we're doing online is being impacted by the architecture of the spaces in which we are engaging. Um, And so when we talk about algorithmic literacy, and we've done a a project, a research report was released in 2021 about this, um, we're talking not strictly about coding and sort of very data science or computer science focused literacy. We're, we're talking about the critical thinking capacities to do kind of what I just described, understand the ways in which algorithms are impacting the kinds of information we're getting, our capacity to navigate within the spaces, advertisements, for example, that are being shown to us. Um, so in that project, we designed a game that was played over three phases, focused quite specifically on recommendation algorithms because we know this is the kind of algorithm that young people encounter the most or most frequently, um, that helped them, created a scaffolded learning experience so that they could better understand what algorithms are and how they're operating and then they could think critically about those. And what we saw over the course of that project was really amazing. We did focus groups with youth uh, 14 to 17 And we saw over the course of that gameplay, by the third phase, young people were very, like the light bulbs were going on, right, where they were very aware of algorithmic bias and how that was impacting not only their experiences, but they were really concerned for youth um, or other people, frankly, who were already marginalized and how these algorithms might um, further marginalize them. And this was one of the first projects where we also saw young people doing a lot of future-oriented thinking. So by that, I mean we had 15 and 16-year-olds who were saying, OK, this doesn't have a, necessarily a direct impact on me now, but I can see how I need to be worried about this when, for example, I'm looking to get into a university or uh, and they might be using algorithms to sift through you know, entry applications or I want to rent an apartment or maybe down the road, buy a home and or, you know, all these other implications that they started to think about. Um, And, you know, um, they were pleasantly surprised and okay with algorithms, you know, recommending things to them, like, entertainment videos and content on TikTok. For the most part, that was okay. But they were really disturbed by the way that algorithms were using their information to make assumptions about other people like them. They really didn't like that. They really didn't like the idea that, you know, algorithmic systems were creating pools of, of information and content about teens so that they could sell things to other teens. Like they really thought that was quite um, they used descriptions like, that was really creepy. Some of them used you know, words like, this is really evil. Um, so, yeah, I think it really showed the critical need for algorithmic literacy in young people's lives.
2: And I think there's also a question of where you integrate algorithmic literacy in the curriculum, right? Because the recent curriculum reforms have kind of put it more in a computer science area, but actually it's about broader critical thinking skills, right? And critical thinking is integrated in many different parts of the curriculum. And in that sense, so should algorithmic literacy. Uh, It should also be integrated throughout. Um, And I think I like the idea that it doesn't have to be just delivered through through digital tools, through digital means. I mean, I've seen interventions using pen and paper and project-based work to really integrate just the ideas behind algorithms and what they can do uh, into education. So... I think one of the things that comes out in the, in the working paper already is the idea that you can't just silo algorithm literacy in computer science or computer courses. It needs to be part of the broader critical thinking uh, elements of the curriculum.
0: Working on pen and paper, could you describe that for us so we can get a sense of it? Because algorithmic literacy could be daunting for a lot of our listeners.
2: So, I mean, the, the intervention I'm thinking of was an intervention that was, uh, was delivered in, I think, Korea and Belgium. And it's basically centered around project-based work. Um, so a lot of media literacy is delivered through inquiry-based learning, project-based learning, and different pedagogical techniques that aren't necessarily connected directly to digital tools. So, so the project's, uh, well, the game is called In the Shoes of the Algorithm, and it's a design-based game. And basically, the game in this uh, intervention lasts two hours. It's run with a pen and paper. And uh, the idea is to split students into algorithm designer teams. And then they both, the teams kind of create their own algorithm by writing down what it would do and the implications of it on a pen and paper. And then they have to argue for or against their own algorithms. And basically, the intervention was shown to, to lead to an enhanced understanding of the role of algorithms and a more critical approach to digital media because it was centered on uh, the idea of, uh, of YouTube content.
1: What Jordan's describing is... Um... Also echoed in our in our own work as well in this project, I was describing the young people who had any sort of introductory baseline knowledge, but algorithms were those who were either at a STEM-based school and or in STEM-based programming. So to highlight that our approach to algorithmic literacy has been to, uh, unfortunately, and I think um, to our detriment, you know, pigeonhole it as a sort of STEM-based computer science focused, uh, which we definitely need to uh, reassess and readjust. And, you know, the, the game that we played in this project is card-based game, So it's kind of meant to be played with a group of young people together using paper-based cards. And I think that is a really helpful pedagogical approach to this. It automatically makes something scary, like algorithms feel more approachable when you're looking at it, you know, outside of the, the tech itself.
0: So what I'm hearing is is that uh, digital literacy, media literacy, and algorithmic literacy should be kind of all together with critical literacy rather than teaching them all separately. Is, is that correct?
2: I think that's, yeah, that, I think I would, I would agree with that, especially when it comes to the issue of disinformation, which is a you know, whole of society issue. You know, media literacy is just one part of the answer to the disinformation challenge.
0: How can governments best integrate that into school curriculums?
2: Um, so, in a lot of respects, it's already integrated into many school curricula. Media literacy, the skills in media literacy feature in a, a lot of curricula uh, in many countries to do with uh, national language, uh, humanities, history, for example, fosters critical thinking. Um, I think one of the things that we're seeing at the moment is uh, a lot of curricular reformers making that media literacy connection uh, more explicit.
1: I can say in the Canadian context it's it's really complicated. And I think it's also complicated in other jurisdictions. You know, we've done research looking at the UK and some other places around the world. And part of the complication is that in, in the Canadian context, you know, media literacy is in the official curriculum of each province and territory. For example, BC's digital literacy curriculum is optional. Um, you know, and Ontario's digital literacy is considered a transferable skill. And so part of the challenge is that while it cuts across all of these jurisdictions, it does so in a way that is non-standardized. Part of the education team's role at MediaSmarts is to make the job of the educator incredibly uh, as easy as possible to say, here are all the curriculum connections across all the different subject matters uh, linked to provincial curricular objectives so that the job of the teacher is quite simple to go, great, I'm going to implement this in the classroom. Of course, this would all be easier if there was a national strategy in Canada that prioritised digital media literacy as a life skill.
2: One of the things that came through uh, when I was researching the working paper is how few countries have these kind of media literacy strategies. Um, I came across, I think, just three in, in, my, in my research, um, all relatively new.
0: Could one of the reasons why we're quite behind on this Uh, be this assumption that we have that oh young people kids they're digital natives they know their way around they can tell the difference between you know what is good information what is bad information could that be something that we need to get past
2: I think definitely, definitely that's the case. Um, you know, in reference to, to the algorithm as well, there was some research done that showed that uh, you know algorithmic awareness in in teenagers is still pretty uneven. There are some teenagers who know a lot about it, some teenagers who've never heard the word algorithm or or know what it is. You know, and so there's definitely that uh, that misconception. And I think we're also reaching a point now where. The term digital native isn't just being applied to children, it's being applied to teachers, you know, young teachers and parents. And that's also a huge challenge because, you know, teachers, uh, teacher education is also catching up, playing catch up with all this extra attention. That's one of the reasons why uh, media literacy needs partnerships with with stakeholders outside of schools. You know, it's crucial for uh, implementing media literacy in the classroom to bring in uh, other stakeholders such as journalists, such as charities, uh, NGOs and foundations, um, for many reasons. I mean, one of the reasons as well, I think, is the fact that children generally uh, or young people generally have very little trust in traditional media. And that's because they're not particularly exposed to it. And I think bringing journalists into the classroom or inviting them to speak, et cetera, just getting this interface between these stakeholders is really important for building trust in good news sources and good information sources.
0: Um, could you, Kara? Could you tell me about uh, MediaSmarts' work with teachers? How are you training them to to teach a digital media literacy?
1: So we have done uh, in the last five or six years two uh, training courses, in particular for teachers through uh, the CanCode program here in Canada. The first was a program we've called Digital Literacy 101. So it really focused on it was a series of free digital literacy workshops. Uh, when faculties of education across the country. So they provided overviews of essential digital literacy skills and competencies to familiarize teachers and training with digital uh, the digital experiences of youth and also introduce them to resources and tools that are available through our website like our media literacy framework. Um, and you know, we conducted an evaluation of that training with over a thousand teachers. We saw a um, really impressive leaps in their reported confidence, pre and post workshop. In particular, what was interesting is there was a strong gender gap that was closed. So before the workshop, women um, indicated that their confidence in teaching digital media literacy in the classroom was significantly below men's, Um, and then post workshop, that women's confidence levels significantly increased from 50% before the workshop to 82% afterwards. Uh, The second training is for teachers across the country to help them see how they can integrate media making into their own teaching across all avenues, including assessment. And in both of those training uh, exercises and evaluations, what was loudly echoed to us from teachers was that it's a lack of of not just pedagogical supports for them to actually implement this in the classroom, but also resources and time. Like, we really heard loudly from teachers that this is fantastic and I really want to implement this, but my school really struggles with having the resources to actually allow me to do this with my students and or um, it takes a lot of time that I, you know, as an educator don't necessarily have because I have all these other objectives, you know, in terms of curricular objectives that I have to meet. And again... Here, here we are back to this discussion of if digital media literacy is seen as one of those core critical curricular competencies, then teachers don't have to pick and choose, right? I, well, I have to do the health lesson. I have to do the science lesson. So, of course, what falls off the desk is digital media literacy. And again, you know, we are constantly trying to show teachers you can do both. You know, digital media literacy cuts across all of these, but, um, but that is the uphill battle.
0: I was just uh, uh, pausing there because I thought, Jordan, I saw you kind of nodded your head when we were talking about teachers and creating media. And so I thought you might want to say something.
2: Yeah, the creation element is really a key part of, of media literacy. I just wanted to emphasize that because, uh, you know, through creating your own your own media, you have a better understanding of the whole media landscape. And it's just, it's one area that I think is particularly uh, particularly important. And also considering that we we see that children are not particularly uh, active in creating their own media, I think it's one area where we can really target it will have a really big effect.
0: I would say yeah, that's the other strong message that I'm, I'm getting from this interview is that both students, teachers, well, maybe everybody needs to get more actively engaged on the internet and in social media and, and not just sit back, but they should be you know, actively checking information, perhaps co-creating knowledge and making media, making videos, making that sort of thing.
1: Yes, I would say, sort of, with, with two important caveats. One that, you know, of course, we always want to encourage youth and their educators and parents to feel that they can engage and, and um, contribute in the online space. But we need to also bear in mind that there are some uh, incredible gaps in terms of levels of participation that cut across all kinds of already existing you know marginalizations in our society so the digital you know equity issues and challenges the digital divides that we are seeing are you know echoing all of these sorts of of, of other divides and by that i mean you know that women and girls tend to be participating at far lower rates than than others as well as you know newcomers in a particular country and, and so on. So we need to keep that in mind, and the other thing is, while we want to encourage folks to um, engage, we can take the algorithmic literacy piece again as an example and increase their own critical competencies and capacities. We don't want to suggest that you know digital media literacy, therefore, is about individualizing any of these kind of problems that we've been talking about, right? I think that's a that's something we need to keep in mind that yes. You know, we need to build our, our digital well-being and our online resilience, but that doesn't let platforms or governments off the hook in terms of their role in also both legislating, regulating, and, and the architectural design decisions that are being made in industry around some of the, the challenges of misinformation, and disinformation, online hate, and those sorts of things that would hinder a person's capacity to um, exercise their critical competencies. Um, And I'll just give one other, you know, kind of example that cuts across what I've been saying. You know, we talk a lot about when it comes to digital, um, digital divides, digital equity, we tend to focus a lot on access. Um, And we tend to to think a lot about, you know, geography and broadband, and those are incredibly important, making sure people have high-speed internet access, for example. But we also need to think about things like access to devices. You know, if a student only has access to a smartphone, Their capacity to exercise the digital media literacy skills that we've been talking about are already hindered before they begin. Because if you've ever tried to join a Zoom call from a smartphone, it's not fun. I think (laughs) I have. (laughs) Yeah. As opposed to. I concur. that's right. As opposed to if you're, you know, able to learn on a, on a computer or a laptop. Um, and similarly, if you're from, you know, if you're a 2SLGBTQ youth who feels threatened in an online space, your capacity to engage in that space is already hindered. So, you know, we just need to keep those things in mind as well.
0: Good points. So promoting digital media literacy digital resourcing to close the equity gap and government legislation to try to make the online space more inclusive for all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I always say it sounds like it's such a cheesy response, but it's so important to emphasize this is a whole of society challenge and it needs to be a whole of society response.
0: Thank you, Kara Brisson-Boyven and Jordan Hill. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about Canada Media Smarts, go to mediasmarts.ca. To find out more about the OECD's work on education and skills, check out our Twitter page. Our handle is at OECD, E-D-U, Skills.